So when we were here last, when I was here last, uh, uh, had much the same miracle. And uh, so actually before we get into the word, uh, let me pray. Father God, I just uh, uh, I thank you for this day. Um, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be together in fellowship. Lord, I thank you for other churches that are also to, together today in fellowship. Lord, for the E-Free Church and Pastor Jake Merriman, who is uh, also busy about your work and uh, great fellowship over there, continue to bless and sustain them. Lord, for uh, ministries here at church, for Harriman Retreat Center, for Kevin and Lori and all the work that they do out there, just pray uh, that you would guide the future of the Harriman Retreat Center. And Lord, for the sound ministry uh, that Doug is over, Lord, uh, they just do a great job. And uh, Doug's done a great job since we're here, and we're thankful for the volunteers. Uh, they do a great job, Lord. And uh, Lord, as we get into your word, pray that you would... Uh, Teach each one of us what you would have. Lord, that you would uh, guide me with your spirit and uh, just uh, let us leave this place uh, filled and thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. There is way too many papers up here. It's all very confusing. So, <laughs> Mark chapter 8. So, when, uh, when I was teaching young managers, I was in the restaurant business for a long time, and I, when I taught young managers, sometimes when they uh, were not getting it, I would just start saying to, to the manager or managers, since it's your first day, we'll go over that again. And I'd keep doing that. Since it's your first day, uh, I'll explain it another time. Since it's your first day, we'll, uh, we'll start from the top. And sooner or later, they'd say, you know it's not my first day. And I'd say, let's not act like it, shall we then? Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I had to repent for that later because uh, <laughs> sometimes in faith I've felt like that. Oh, hey, look, it's my first day and it shouldn't be. But I kind of feel like that when you, when you see the disciples and what, they're, what, what they have going on here. Uh, and because it always seems like they've seen some things and they should remember some things, but it's like it's their first day again. But the cool thing about that is Jesus is loving and compassionate and he continues to bear with them he continues to teach them and look for the teachable moments so you're going to see that throughout this this passage of scripture and it's interesting when you break it down and you do a section at a time it seems kind of choppy but if you read it together it really fits together really well but it starts out with a miracle just like in mark chapter 6 and it reads like this and there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat and Jesus called his disciples and said to him, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away to their homes, they may faint on the way, for some have come from a great distance. So what's interesting about that is he starts the same way again, is that he has compassion on the crowd. I, I think it's continued compassion because he's been with them for three days. And imagine this, Jesus is probably doing the same things that he's been doing with the people. He's teaching them, and he is healing people. So just imagine these guys have been on a three-day um, uh, three church service, and it's about to break up. Which reminds me, by the way, you know, before, um, uh, when Sean got sick, I only had an hour to get ready. I've had way too much time to think about this. So last night when I ran through this, 75 minutes. So uh, <laughs> buckle in, hope you got some snacks, <laughs> or pray for the Holy Spirit for brevity, something like that. But um, they, uh, uh, 
he had compassion on them. He's been teaching them, and he knows they're about to go on their way. So he says in verse 4, And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. And they also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left, left over from the broken pieces. So he duplicates the miracle he did when he fed the 5,000. He just gives thanks and just starts handing out bread. God performing a miracle. From the beginning of time, when he said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he can create that. He can certainly multiply some bread. And so you would think that when he says to his disciples, they wouldn't have this Groundhog's Day moment where they're like, well, where are we going to get bread again? Somebody should think back and go, oh, the first time Jesus asked that question, he multiplied this bread, right? But they don't do that. They're like, again, where are we going to go get them? And I think we can harsh on the disciples pretty easily. But at the same time, if all your life getting bread has been a transactional thing where you give money and you get the bread and you have to go somewhere to give money to get the bread, I can see why they might be stuck there a little bit. It's a big, it's a big change in your brain to go, oh, I don't have to buy bread. Jesus is right here. He can do a thing. So don't be too harsh on the disciples. But then the same thing happens. He gives thanks and he breaks the bread. And then they have seven large baskets of what was left over. And there was about 4,000 there. And then he sent them on their way. So they've had their three-day church service. And there must have been a lot of bread because if you've been in church for three days and just kind of sitting and then you get a meal, a free meal, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm at the free buffet, I'm going to get down. I'm going I'm <laughs> I'm to get some grub on. So, so it's a pretty big miracle because they're probably pretty hungry and they're thinking, I got a journey to go, so I'm really going to pack it in. So I, I like that miracle. But anyway, uh, in, in verse 11, he says, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him and seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So uh, I think it's really not a great idea to begin to argue with Jesus. Um, No matter how good you are, he's probably going to win because he's God and he knows everything, so he, he knows the counter-argument before you put out your argument. It's not great. But they want to argue with him, and they want to test him, and they want to, they want to sign from heaven. And this is interesting to me because this is just preceded by a miracle. And if they've been around, if they've been around, they should have recognized that Jesus has done all kinds of miracles. He's healed people. People are coming to him in droves because the word has gotten out. Even the Pharisees bring a man with a withered arm to him on a Sabbath day to see if he's going to heal them to try to entrap him. And he does heal them. I don't think that these guys are unaware that Jesus can do a miracle and perform signs. And so, uh, why are they asking for a sign? I think that faith doesn't need a sign. But if you don't have faith, you want a sign. And I think that if they, 
um, they think that they can come to Jesus and argue with him and cajole him and maybe make him Jesus genie in the bottle and make him do what they want. You have all this power, prove it to us. And Jesus says, I'm just not going to give you a sign. But the reason why he sighs before he says he's not going to give them a sign is because the Pharisees, even though they're Pharisees, these are his chosen people. These are the children of Israel. This is who Jesus chose to be his chosen people to take his message to the rest of the world. And so, of course, he sighs. He's sad because the people that he chose specifically have not have faith, and they're asking him for a sign like he hasn't already performed signs. And so I think he sighs just probably out of exasperation. His heart is hurt that his people have rejected him. And, and when I thought about this for us, I mean, I don't know if we ask for signs like this, but I think, I, I think a lot of us in faith have probably had that moment where I know a number of times I've said, Jesus, are you just going to do something? Lord, will you please step in and do something in this moment? Will you act in this moment? And Jesus doesn't. And I don't know if it's necessarily because they don't have faith, but I think sometimes we want to see Jesus work in the way that we think he should work rather than in the way that he's actually working. And so as I thought about this, as I thought about just this whole thing of asking Jesus for a sign, I, I, I don't think it's wrong to ask Jesus for, hey, will you heal somebody? Will you be with somebody? Will you, will you bring salvation to somebody? I don't think that's wrong. But just like uh, the Pharisees, I don't think that we necessarily take stock on the things that have happened around us. These guys have seen feeding of 5,000 uh, and people cured and people here have been healed. Um, people here have been, uh, uh, God has put people or brought people through situations. But if you look at the things that have happened that have preceded this message in our fellowship, it's really cool. I got to thinking about this and adding, uh, adding a sign. So there have been some healings. There's been some pretty miraculous stuff. But here's the most miraculous thing. People in this fellowship have had the miracle of salvation. And, it's, and there's so many people. There's, as I look out here, there's so many stories. If you just think about a, a number of years ago, we had a, a pastor elders retreat. And people were giving their testimony about how they came to faith and what their walk is like. And, and in all reality, it sounded like um, an AA meeting for parolees. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, because um, a lot of us guys in our youth did not have it together. And God changed us through salvation and through sanctification. And as I look around the room, there are so many people that have been brought out of so many circumstances. It's amazing. This room is fantastic. It's full of miracles. And sometimes we don't always see that because sometimes we don't share. If you get a chance when you're talking to people about faith, when, when, when you're hanging out at dinner or when you're doing that whatever together, talk about it. Bring it up. Because there's a lot of things that have happened. There's miracles in this room, and it's pretty fantastic. So as they ask for a sign, he doesn't give it to them because faith doesn't need a sign. So as Jesus goes on, he leaves them. He just says, nope, no sign for this generation. He again embarked and went out to the other side. And when they had forgotten to take bread, they did not have more than one loaf on the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why did you discuss the fact that you do not have any bread? 
Do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes you do not see, and having ears you do not hear. And you do not remember that when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not understand? So this is kind of like um, that particular thing. Since it's your first day, I'm going to explain it to you again. So they get on the boat, and it just, it just puts a note in there that they had one loaf of bread. So they got in a hurry. They're getting on the boat. Somebody grabbed a loaf of bread, even though there's baskets left. And Jesus is very specific. He starts talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so when you, um, the picture of leaven, yeast, is used as a picture of sin. In, in both the Old Testament more, but some in the New Testament, where if, if you've ever made bread, and this would have been a culture where they made bread every day, when you put the yeast in, the whole thing gets nice. And, and then you bake it, it's nice and golden brown, it's delicious. But if you put sin in there, when it bakes, it's not delicious. Sin doesn't come out great. And so they would have, this would have been a real picture for them about, okay, sin takes over everything. And he's saying, beware, beware of the sin beware of the bad thoughts of the Pharisees and of Herod. So the Pharisees, they have this thought. They don't have, seems to me they don't have any faith, and they're trying to test Jesus to get him to do what they want, and they have a very earthly view of what Jesus' ministry is supposed to be. They're looking for the Messiah to come and be a political or a uh, warring leader who is going to lead them on earth and help them overtake the Roman government. And they know the law, but they're, but they're missing it. They're missing it all together because their hearts are hard. And then Herod, if you remember Herod, when he had John the Baptist, he liked to hear from John the Baptist. He called him up and he talked to him and, 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 Herod would, uh, and John the Baptist would tell him, you know, what scripture said. And, and Herod liked talking to him. And Herod was even scared of the things he said. But you know what Herod didn't do? He didn't give over to God. He kept hearing the message from John kept hearing the message from John, and he didn't forsake his sin. He didn't repent. If you remember John's message, he said, repent, turn from your sins, and turn to Christ. Herod heard the message over and over again, but he didn't repent and turn from his sins. Ultimately, his sin ended up taking John the Baptist's head. So that's why he's saying, stay away from this way of thinking. Stay away from this sinful way of thinking. But, so since he says leaven, and he's talking about sin, in the mind of the disciples, they're thinking leaven, yeast, bread. Oh, we only got one loaf. What are we going to do? Is Jesus hungry? And Jesus is like, do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you have a hard heart? And then, he, and then he, in verse 18, he says, having eyes, you do not see, and having ears, you do not hear. So that's both in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. Um, and then he goes on to tell them, hey, look, first of all, here's the deal. Remember the two times where I took this many loaves and this many loaves and fed a whole bunch of people? Why are you worried that you only have one loaf of bread? I can fill the boat in a minute, is basically what he's saying. You're thinking about the wrong thing. You've seen this twice now. You're worried about one loaf of bread. Eek. And then he said, <laughs> and, and then he said in verse 21, you, do you not yet understand? So he's trying to tell them, hey, look, I've gone through this. 
I've gotten the bread, you're thinking about the wrong thing, I'm talking about the leaven, the sin that the Pharisees and Herod have put out there to the people. And he wants to be clear about that because he's teaching his disciples over and over again. And sometimes, uh, you know, it seems like, do you not understand? Do you have a hard heart? You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. Um, That might seem harsh, but, you know, the 118 is coming from Scripture. And sometimes um, exhortation doesn't necessarily have to be soft. And Jesus isn't doing it to try to make them feel bad. He's trying to get them to make them to think. He's trying to cajole their minds like, what did Jesus say? Well, that stung a little bit. And he's not being politically correct, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's unloving. Some, some cultures are just different than ours. I remember when we were in Peru, uh, uh, my, my sister-in-law, who is Peruvian, um, I, was, I was making a joke about um, not being skinny, and she said, well, just stop eating all those fatty and sugary American snacks. And to her, it was just a cultural thing where you gave the direct answer, right? So, so I don't, for her, she was helping me because she was just saying directly. So a lot of other cultures don't have this politically correct thing that we have. So, so, so um, don't think that Jesus is just harshing on these guys to be harsh. He's being direct because they're thick, and that's okay. So, and then he leaves them with, you don't understand. And then in verse 22, uh, and they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And again, he laid his hands on his eyes and looked intently, and he was restored and began seeing everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even even enter into the village. So this is an interesting story. So uh, about that little section where he does that healing, Here's, here's what you need to know. Jesus heals people, and sometimes it's weird. Verse 27. <laughs> uh, so, and, and this is where I kind of wanted to get to, because, because this is, I, I think this ending passage is kind of a crescendo of, of this chapter. Uh, it's pretty important stuff. Um, verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell nobody. And this is an interesting conversation because this conversation, even though Jesus isn't with us, This conversation happens all the time. It seems like almost every year before Christmas and every year before Easter, notice them, they'll be coming up. You'll start to see in Time Magazine and National Geographic, U.S. News and World Report and so on, people, publishers will start putting out articles about who Jesus was and who they thought he was. And and there's all kinds of answers. There's the whole pantheon of answers as as far as what society or who society thinks Jesus is. And so you'll see this to this day. And he asks them a question, I think, to get them to start thinking. Who do people say that I am? And there's a lot of answers here. I think there's even more in our society because 
depending upon where you're at. But he asks a general question as they're taking this walk along the road. And then, and then he asks them to the group, who do you say that I am? Then he personalizes the question. And uh, I wasn't going to get too much into um, the other Gospels, but I thought for this section it was important. So you can turn there if you like. Uh, but I'm going to Matthew 16 here because it has just a little bit more detail uh, about what Peter says. So, so here's how it reads in the Gospel of Matthew 16, 13. Now, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I wanted to make a couple of important distinctions about that. Um, because I, I, I feel like there's a lot of... Um, what I've heard oftentimes is when, when people talk about the Bible, they're sharing the Bible, they say, the Bible says it, I believe it, therefore it's true. And what I want to say to you is that your belief does not affect the truth at all. Peter's belief does not affect the truth at all. And just to give you an, just to clarify that, Peter doesn't say something that's untrue. The revelation that, get, that Peter gets is of the truth from the Father. And when Peter says it, it is a proclamation of the truth or his statement of the truth, but it doesn't change the truth. Because, and that's an important distinction because when we share the gospel, when we're out there talking, talking about it, if you lead with, I believe, well, sometimes in our world that there is, a, people believe a lot of different things that have nothing to do with the truth. They have nothing to do with anything that's true. You can believe anything under the sun these days, pretty much, and it will be true. So it's important to note that when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about that, it's not that your belief isn't, is unimportant, but... The truth, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah is a big enough truth. The truth of salvation is big enough for the entire world, for all of humanity, for all of time. Jesus' salvation is that big. That truth is that big. His grace is that big. But the distinction there is that when we hear the word, and we receive the word, and we make that same statement, that same proclamation of the truth, my belief is only sufficient for me. My salvation, my proclamation of my belief revealed to me by God is only su sufficient for me. And the important thing in that is that we can't ride the coattails of somebody else's faith, somebody else's proclamation or statement of the truth. Each generation has to make this distinction, has to, each person, my kids can't get into heaven based on my faith. My parents can't, nobody in this room can get, uh, get into heaven based on my faith, right? Each person has to have their own faith. That's why it is so important for us to know the truth, for us to be in the scripture, for us to understand what the truth is. And hopefully each of us come to the same knowledge that through the Father that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Messiah, and that He did come to earth, 
and he did die and in that moment our sins died with him and in his resurrection came the hope of the resurrection each one of us need to get there on our own with the help of god i mean individually not on our own that was that was kind of wrong so when you see peter say this blessed are you peter because flesh did not reveal this to you this is another thing that is really comforting to me when i share the gospel with people because uh um I, I remember when, when I first started to step out and share the gospel, I had this and, and I, I had this passion, but sometimes a misplaced passion that I believe this so deeply and I wanted people to believe it too. And that's not wrong. But I was pushing what I believe, what I believe, what I believed, which is good because I believe it very deeply. But as I started to talk to people, as I expressed the truth, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. And the important thing about that is I felt there was a lot of pressure off because I could look at somebody with compassion and I could love them. But when I turned down, this is what I believe and, and I want you to believe it too. When I just started sharing the truth, it became a different conversation because the pressure is not on me. It is for God to reveal that to them when they see and hear the truth. And I, I hope I'm not confusing you with that, but because I think we should have passion. I still do have pa passion. I do have compassion for people. But when I realized fully that, oh, God is the one that's going to reveal, with them, reveal the truth to them, I'm just going to share the truth. I'm going to share the truth. I'm going to share Scripture. I'm going to try to get them to Scripture. And it took the weight off me where I could, I could be more human instead of, you have to believe this because I believe it. It turned to, this is the truth. And I'm going to share the truth, and God's going to do his thing, and it's going to be amazing when I see God work. So the pressure was off me. So, uh, so, so I hope that distinction helps. And, and, and as, and as uh, young people, old people, if you're, if you're wrestling with the gospel or the truth, wrestle with it. Wrestle with this. Because we should individually. Not alone, but in, individually. And, and in verse 30 then, uh, after he proclaims that he is the Christ, he says, he warned them to tell no one about him. And I think he does that right now because these guys are not quite ready to go out and share the gospel. You'll see in, you'll see in the book of Acts that God gets them ready, but I don't think at this point that they're quite 100% ready. And then immediately he starts and he says, be, um, he began to teach them, this is verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed after three days and then rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on, the on God's interests, but, as but in man's. And so he states plainly what's going to happen to him. And Jesus is, you know, prophet, priest, and king, and he's prophesying about himself. This is what's going to happen because he wants them to know so that when they see it, they recognize it. And this action is the playing out of the gospel where he is setting down his life. Remember John 10, 11 says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I can pick it back up again. But he's telling them about his redemptive work here. And so... When Peter, when Peter says, um, and he's saying this plainly, and, and uh, Peter took him aside, but then he turns to his disciples, um, Peter began to rebuke him. And I don't know if this is Peter acting on his own, and I, I don't know if he's a spokesman for the group, but again, 
here's, here's how this fits together because he's just warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees and um, their way of thinking about they want Jesus to be the kind of um, Lord and King that they want him to be. This is the kind of Lord and King that he's going to be. So Peter, in his thinking, starts saying, no, you can't do that because it doesn't fit my mind model of how you should be God. And then Jesus says to him, and this is pretty harsh, get behind me, Satan, for you got your things on the things of man, not the things of God. And I don't think this is too harsh either because Jesus is about to die and he's going to die a vicious death and he knows this. He just, he just said it here. And, and Peter is supposed to be his friend and stuff. I'd be a little mad at him too. I'm about to do a really hard thing, Peter, and you're trying to dissuade me from that? Ugh. I'd be a little aggravated with him too. And the other thing is I think he's been tempted by Satan to think like this. So it may seem awful harsh for, for um, Jesus to call Peter Satan, but if they were about to hang me on a cross and one of my friends said, no, that couldn't happen to you. But really, thanks for the help. Yeah, not helping. Not helping, Peter. Um, by the way, Peter does get it. These disciples get it sooner or later. I mean, after all this, and, 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 and this is kind of the dichotomy of faith. I don't know if you guys have had a day or a week like this in your faith where one minute you're like, yay, God has done this and it's amazing. And the next thing you're like, oh my goodness, here I am face down on the ground again going, what just happened? I don't understand what just happened. So um, our faith sometimes has this roller coaster like Peter's. So <coughs> if you feel like that, I don't know how Peter felt. I'm guessing it couldn't be great. But uh, just know that you're going to make it through. God's going to continue to have compassion and love you, even if you feel like Peter some days, whether which side you are proclaiming Christ or getting sent away like Satan. Persevere. And then in verse 34, so after he said that, he's going to clarify. He's still continuing to teach. Even though he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter, and he is, but he's still continuing to teach because he wants him to understand it. And he says, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So when you, when you look at this, this would have been a very visceral picture for them. This would have been something where they would have said, what? Because the Romans crucified people all the time. Sometimes when you walked into cities, there was rows of people and they crucified them right out there. So when you walked in the city, so you knew, don't mess with the Romans, right? And so they would have seen this. This would have been something where they saw people dying or gasping for breath or people rotting on the cross. It was not good. Romans were pretty vicious. So they would have seen this. So they knew when it said, you must pick up your cross and follow me, that that was a picture that they were probably going, Maybe I don't want to follow this guy because what just happened there? Wow, that's a hard thing. But, um, and this is one of the verses, this is one of the sections where, where I've seen, where I've seen um, Bible teachers um, both hammer uh, on people um, with this verse, just hammer away and make people feel bad. And this is another passage where people have also been dismissive. And so I thought, well, what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? What does that mean to me personally? Because they would have had a very visceral picture in their mind. They would have had that maybe sight, smell, that sort of thing. But when you're looking at it, what does it look like for us? And instead of, and instead of giving you a list of don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I, what I think it looks like in Scripture. 
in, in, in Mark chapter 7, where Sean was last week, when you see the Seraphonician woman, and she comes to Jesus, and he basically calls her a dog because um, she is a Gentile, and she knows that uh, God has come for the Jews, but he does that because he knows her faith, and her faith says, look, my daughter can get healed by even the scraps of goodness that fall from the grace of God for his chosen people. How amazing is that? How counter is that to the American philosophy of I deserve this or I think I should have this or maybe it's the human philosophy? I, I don't I know. It's, it's, it's a natural. But for her to come like that, and it, that, that's a section of Scripture where I'm like, Jesus, what are you doing? That is painful for you to say that to that lady. But he knew who she was and he, she, he knew what her faith was. And that was the example he used to say, look, she came with humility of heart to seek Jesus in whatever he wanted to give. And she knew that even the scraps of his grace could save her daughter. And he did because she had faith. I think another thing, so, so I think it looks like that, just being humble, approaching God in a humble way. Um, I think it also looks like picking up your cross and following Jesus. I, I think it looks a lot like um, uh, Philippians and in chapter 2. I think it looks like this. Therefore, this is uh, Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also the interest of others. Have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equity with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking uh, the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So if you look at that, you know, picking up your cross and following Jesus, it looks like a, a, a lot like setting down a lot of human characteristics and picking up those characteristics of God. So as you think about that, what does it mean for me to pick up my cross and follow Jesus? Spend some time in Philippians 2. That's what it looks like. It looks like, hey, I need to be like Jesus. I need to be obedient to God. And... Um, you see the obedience of God that he, he, did what, uh, he did what the Father asked him to by coming. And you see the opposite um, with someone like the rich young ruler where he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And um, Jesus says, well, basically follow the law. And the young man says, I've done all those from since my youth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the young man walked away sad. And the reason why he did is because, you know, the, in that case, he had a lot of things. He had an attachment to money. Money's not the evil thing because you could have $10 or a million dollars. But what happened is he had a heart attachment to those things and that money. 
which kept him away from proclaiming Jesus and being obedient. So when you look at what does it look like to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Setting down your own will and being obedient. What does that look like for you? I don't really know. I don't know what you have in your life. I can't guess, but I, but I can tell you, I know a way you can find out. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, <coughs> excuse me, though he will, it will bear more fruit. And you are already clean because of, the, uh, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and so neither can you unless you abide in me. Think about that. Picking up your cross and following Jesus. All those characteristics in, in Philippians. But to get there, to know how God wants you to act, what it says in here is you're already clean. You have been, in, in your confession of faith, in your believing in Romans 10.9, you're clean because you have salvation. But what he says then now is abide. And my friend Mark and I have a lot of conversations about this because busy lives and kids and all that sort of stuff. And, and he read a book years ago and shared it with me and we talk about this. Creating margin in our lives so we have time to abide with Christ. And abiding with Christ just means to hang out. Sometimes we think, and, and this is not a bad thing, I need to read the whole Bible this year or I need to do or I need to do or I need to do. And th those things aren't bad. However, God wants us to hang out with him, to know him. And one of the things that uh, I remember early on in Christianity, probably 2003 or four, that I, w I, I had this pressure that, oh, I got to read the whole Bible. I got to read the whole Bible. And it was a mess. It was really hard to do. And uh, we were at a men's retreat and Sean said, just read the book of Ephesians every day for a month. And you know what? That's kind of where I learned to abide because all the pressure of thinking I had to be a good Christian to just read through the Bible, you know what? When I started reading that every day, it started to come alive. And God started to talk to me through that. I started getting convicted about things. I started learning things. A uh, couple of times doing, during that month, God dropped an anvil on my soul because I realized, you know that part which says, love your wife like Christ loved the church? Turns out I wasn't very good at that. That was not a great moment. But... In that, what happened was I was just abiding with Christ. I didn't have an outside agenda of I have to read this much, I have to pray this much. But what happened was when I started doing that over and over again, I had this natural desire to, when I get done with this, I'm not going to get off work and go waste time doing this or that, or before bed I'm not going to watch a TV show. I'm going I'm, I'm to see, see what this book of Ephesians has for me again. And then, and then before long I was all over the place in the Bible. And so when, when you're talking about, hey, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Hey, look, I think it's pretty clear in Philippians, but for the, you know, the attitude we're supposed to have, but for your individual life, I would say, if you don't know what the answer is, abide with Christ, be in his word, be in prayer, and he will tell you. I guarantee if you say, God, what is a sin in my life that I can't see? Will you show it to me? He will be faithful to do that. I can't promise that you will like the experience, but, but he will be faithful. But the good thing about that is that he will walk you through the sanctification in that. So in that, each one of you has to take this home and start to look at it and think, what is it that I need? What does that look like for me? 
and, and really just pray it through and spend time in the Scripture. And then he goes on to say, because I think it's important to have that foundation of what that means, picking up your cross and just knowing what Christ wants from you, because he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the gospel's sake will save it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And I think a lot of times we think about the rich young ruler in this, like I talked about before, and it can be. And again, money gets vilified. Money's just a thing, people's attitude towards the money. But I'll tell, I'll tell you what this, when I read this passage, is what I think about. When I was, <laughs> the first year that I went to, on a mission trip to Trinidad, um, a large Hindu population there. And we were doing th- three days of crusade um, at, uh, I can't even remember the city. That's not important. Um, so uh, we're sharing the gospel, and there was a man who was there the first night, and he came the second night, and there was a couple of kids, uh, young people from the church here that, that were with me, and we met this man on the road, and we had like a 20-minute conversation about the gospel, about salvation, about eternity. And I said, do you, do you want Jesus? Do you, do you want to confess him as Lord? And he looked at me, and he said, I know this is true, but if I do that, I will lose my family, I will lose my business, I will lose everything that I have. And as far as it goes, like if, as far as American money, he wasn't rich, but he had family because the, Hindu, because the Hindu culture says, if you change religions, you're done, you're anathema, you're out. And he said, I would have nowhere to go. He says, I know this is true, I want this, but I can't because I will lose everything. And he turned and he walked away. And I remember just standing there with those kids and just dumbfounded. This guy walked away and he preserved his whole world right here, right now. Understanding what the gospel was. So, you know, it says the whole world. His whole world remained intact, the side of heaven. But as he walked away, I had a lump in my throat that I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe that a man had recognized who Jesus was, had recognized that Jesus could provide him eternity, and said, I'm going to go. Wow. I was like, I don't know if I like mission trips anymore. That was really hard. I, uh, I, I cried like a small child in the bus later, like, uh, like literally, like, you know, when you have the snot bubble tears. Uh, <laughs> because it was, I, I had never thought that people would recognize who Jesus was and walk away. So when, so when I see this passage, he, if, if he would have lost everything on earth and never had another thing this side of heaven, he would have had eternity with Jesus Christ. And he walked away for that, for what was here. Ouch. And that's what Jesus is saying in this verse here. Hey, you're going to lose something in this life. But hey, you're going to gain eternity. Wow. And then verse 38. For, who, uh, for who is that, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes with glory with his Father and the holy angels. And I'll tell you what, I have another thing that when this particular verse, when I first came to work here, uh, a young lady in the youth group uh, said, I would rather suffer a horrific death in a third world country 
than suffer embarrassment in my school for the gospel. And I thought, wow. Did she just say that? Then a little bit later, it undid me. It really undid me because in a lot of ways I thought like her because at that time I wanted to share with Jesus but you know what I wanted it to be easy and I didn't think I'd ever be up here like this where it's out on the internet and all that sort of stuff and we live in a world where this you know we're not getting crucified but people they're dredging up Twitter feed thing for people in public and just messing people's lives up and so there's something to that her fear her fear made me realize I wanted this easy Christianity and I just wanted to kind of hide and do my thing with kids and not have to get any of that sort of stuff where you have to stand publicly and proclaim this Jesus thing because guess what? People don't like that and I know a lot of people. And it's not easy when that happens because you're, you're going to lose friends. And so after a while, I was like, I, I was like man, I, I, I love that girl. Thank you. Thank goodness that she said that because it made it, it it's really changed how I thought about it because I had to go through this thing where I had to wrestle with I'm a Christian and I love people I look at them with compassion but I want to hide I don't want to do that even though I'm comfortable talking with people wow this is a hard thing because the world doesn't appreciate the gospel even if you even if you put out the truth with love and compassion people are not going to like it you may be called a racist ignorant homophobic bigot that's what happens these days um and, and and the reality is you know you know that saying when you're a kid sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me guess what um i'm calling for that saying liar liar pants on fire because it it hurts when people say things right and so i so i had this process where where just getting closer in the word and abiding and learning how to talk about this stuff and thinking about the truth and thinking about my compassion i got more comfortable with it and what happened was, is the first part of this verse, I'm not ashamed to talk about Jesus now. Therefore, I don't think about the second half of the verse because I'm not ashamed, but I didn't get there overnight. I didn't get there in a minute. It took a long time and it took a lot of people, Pastor Bob, Sean, and a lot of conversations with Chris and the other elders and Tono and just being comfortable in my skin as a Christian so as you're abiding with Christ and you're thinking about this thing and you're thinking about the truth and you're thinking about all this, some of, there's some scary heavy stuff in this section. But don't avoid it. Abide with Christ. Spend the time in the Word. What is it like to be Christ-like? What does Christ want from you? He'll tell you and it won't be counter-scriptural. So as you go this week, that's, that's my challenge to you. Wrestle with this section of Scripture. It's tough, but it's really, really good. Because we see Jesus abiding with his people. We see Jesus hanging out with his people. We see him continually teaching them. And then we see him bearing with them. We see him having compassion on the world and drawing people to him. And then, hopefully, like the disciples, at some point we will all, within our scope of who God made us, be like the disciples in Acts. And we will go out and share the gospel how God called us to. Amen? Father God, I am thankful for your word. Uh, I am thankful for um, the challenge of just uh, working through it this week. Um, Lord, I thank you that uh, <laughs> you, uh, you just show up and uh, help me, Lord. Um, Lord, as we go, I just pray that each one of us would just uh, look at you with love, that we would um, be thankful for your truth, that we would be seeking you and uh, doing the things that you would want us to do in our lives.
Lord, that you, that you would um, just help us to, uh, as we talk to our fellow Christians, to share um, the glorious things that you've done in our lives, and that we would share it boldly, that, um, that we would just know that there's, there's healing and miraculous things that you've done all around us, and um, Lord, that we would just uh, love you more because of that and because of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.